3: Wednesday morning the 17th of November Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am This is Michael Reid on LMFM The Taoiseach Mihol Martin has been speaking once again about coronavirus in another address to the nation from government buildings
4: And I know that no one wants to go back to a world of widespread restrictions
3: And as you'd expect at this stage all of us are being asked to do our bit
4: It is only our collective effort Full adherence to the rules that remain in place, making sure we are vaccinated and taking our booster when it becomes available, working from home if we are able to, wearing our masks, keeping our distance and being aware of our environment. It is only this collective effort that will keep our society and economy
3: open pubs, clubs and restaurants will close at midnight from Friday. We should work from home wherever possible. If someone in your household has COVID, you must stay at home for at least five days. You need a COVID cert to go to cinemas and theatres and there's a new emphasis on wearing masks. But is this enough? What is the public health advice? Did they say that all of this will be sufficient? They've not used that phrase will be sufficient. Does the government think that the new restrictions are sufficient?
4: It remains to be seen as to whether these measures will be sufficient to hold back uh, the tide of infection and the um, hospitalization
3: and what if this isn't
4: sufficient the modeling uh, is basically as you know varying from uh, in terms of an optimistic scenario a thousand in hospital at peak 150 to 200 in icu the pessimistic scenario could be 2000 uh, in hospital a uh, longer period and then 3 to 400 in icu um, so those are the, the scenarios that were presented to us last evening. And it was on that basis we've taken these measures. We're not ruling out any further measures. We'll keep it under review.
3: So if it's not sufficient, what then? Are we facing a possible lockdown for Christmas? It'll be over the next, normally it takes
4: about 14 days to three weeks to, to monitor the impact of particular measures. But I'm not ruling out, you know, and if it may come back to us at any particular point in time and offer advices, but we do have to take time to see how these measures impact.
3: That's the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, Ayana Reardon is a TD for Dublin Bay North and uh, the Labour Party spokesperson on education and enterprise and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. I suppose government is looking at a balancing act as always between public health, mental health and protecting the economy. Do you think that they've got the balance right this time round?
5: Well, yes and no, but that's a classic politician's answer. Um, You know, we were the only party in opposition to support the government's move to keep the legal framework intact until January, so they could introduce restrictions like this if needed. So we have worked with government when we felt it was important to support government. However, at the same time, you can't effectively close the nighttime industry after midnight and on the same day cut the PUP payments. Uh, We still don't have protections in place for those who do work at home, so they have a right to disconnect and we still don't have statutory sick pay. So there are a number of things that we've been trying to introduce uh, and work with government on that haven't come to the fore, uh, you know, that would have helped this type of announcement. Yes, be an awful lot easier to accept. And also, because I am education spokesperson, all of us in the parliamentary Labour Party um, are quite concerned that the school system is, at, is on the brink of collapse. And there's no leadership from government to appreciate this or to acknowledge this or to do anything to prevent it from happening. We had a report last April, May, from uh, Professor Mark Ferguson, which advocated antigen testing to be rolled out in primary schools and post-primary schools. We're now in November, which is basically six months later, uh, and there's still no sign from government as to how this is going to be done. So, look, we we want, as a party, to, you know, to recognise it's a national effort, to recognise that the fundamentally government is trying to save lives and keep people's yeah, you know, well, and that's, that's mm. absolutely justifiable, and we know that a priority for government is to keep schools open, and that's absolutely justifiable as well. But when we try to work with governments, we don't seem to be heard. And then when these announcements are made, uh, the support that should be there for those who are who are working in these sectors most affected don't seem to have been prioritised. We're one of the only countries in Europe not to have statutory sick pay, and we're 18 months into this
3: crisis. Right. Um, When the Taoiseach says it'll be 14 days, three weeks before we really know what the impact of uh, these restrictions will be, we're talking about the beginning of uh, December. You're saying that as things stand, the school system is on the brink of collapse. How do you prevent it from collapsing despite what you say should have been done? Uh, If you're right, that it's on the brink now because it hasn't been done. What do you do now in this scenario? Should the schools be closing early for Christmas?
5: No, well, I don't believe we're at that point yet. But, I mean, the, the Minister Donnelly was on the radio this morning not in a position to, to know when antigen testing will be rolled out in schools because it's done this from last May. We need to know that immediately. We, we are advocating now that those working in schools uh, and other front, frontline workers, but particularly teachers, SNAs, caretakers, secretaries, should be prioritised for booster vaccines. We definitely need uh, to look at the ventilation issues in overcrowding classrooms, overcrowded classrooms as well. But you know, this is the type of, uh, of of messaging from government which is really concerning me and concerning others working in the sector. There's been a substitution crisis at primary and secondary levels for about three years. Um, the minister two weeks ago seemed to be completely unaware of any substitution issue. So, and even yesterday, even yesterday, when in conversation with Alan Kelly, uh, the teacher said that the five-day rule for self-isolation um, teachers will be exempt from it, and then he re- re- resigned from that. Uh, within hours. So there seems to be complete confusion, lack of leadership on the education front. The whole point of a lot of these restrictions was in order to keep schools open, which we, you know, we support. Um, but, you know, there's so much that could be done uh, mm-hmm. even at this late stage to, to, to put an awful lot more self-confidence within the within the system, within the sector, yeah. and, and for people to feel as if there is a level of leadership. Think don't the know what, we, but the point is, the point is know, we don't know what a Minister for Education is. And this is really, really concerning for those of us who are actually trying to work with government.
3: OK, uh, just going back to what you said uh, about uh, teachers having uh, to restrict their movements for five days, uh, that the Taoiseach, you said, told Alan Kelly in the doll yesterday that teachers were exempt from that. The Taoiseach said he didn't say that. Do you accept, do you accept that? No. Right. Uh, maybe we can hear...
5: There's the, a the teacher who told us uh, you know, a few weeks ago that the banks weren't bailed out. I know exactly what he said to Alan Kelly because Alan Kelly came to me immediately after with totally exasperated because what the Labour Party do, I'll be quite frank about this, we don't just mm. do this stuff for show. We ask questions in the door and often we follow up on a one to one to impress on the, on the minister
3: how important it is. I know, but, but, absolutely but, flatly but surely there's cross wires here. I mean, you can't be suggesting that the Taoiseach lies. Uh, well, you know.
5: well, either the Taoiseach, uh, either the Taoiseach told uh, you know, something that either Taoiseach was confused or Taoiseach told, uh, told a lie. Neither of those two things are a good space for a Taoiseach
3: to be in. All right, well, the Taoiseach was asked about this last night and we'll hear uh, what he had to say to Gavin Riley of Virgin Media News.
0: That you told him there would be an exemption for
3: teachers. Did you from... see it?
0: I didn't
4: see, well, it was off microphone, so no one... There was none. But the... Adam Kelly seems... And Adam Kelly, to... no. Look, look, I mean, there was no exchange in the dial about it at all. I'm, I was very I mean, the chamber. It was, was off microphone. It wasn't in the chamber at all. It was a very brief, I'd say, 40-second engagement. Uh, we talked about schools. I'm very annoyed about it. I've spoken to him. Uh, complete misconstruction uh, I've made it very clear regardless of vaccination status household close contact should restrict movements for five days pending completion of recommended antigen testing no one is exempt from that okay and I, I'm sorry not for but uh, I was a bit taken back by how that
5: was constructed but anyway
3: we should be able to take the Taoiseach at his word but a on a rear and you're saying either the Taoiseach is mixed up or he's lying
5: well, it's even in that exchange. He said there was no exchange in the chamber, and then within seconds he says, "Well, he said not know, in the doll,
3: <laughs> but I think when meaning I on the, the, the record uh, of the uh, doll." I think that's what was intended by that.
5: I know, I know, yeah. I know who yeah. I believe, uh, and I know this is completely consistent with a you know an administration that is not in charge. And if there was any sense of leadership or being in charge of the education sector, most of us uh, would would actually have have a sense that this is a misstep. Uh, and, uh, and wasn't part of jet deliberate strategy. To me, this was part of something that was going to be announced, then was resiled from, but when it became clear from my interactions on social media that there was a, a hugely negative reaction to what was being suggested. You said- we, don't have, we don't have a minister that we can find to make a comment on the situation. We we have a we have a, a an education system that.
3: But well, what does that mean? Throughout. Because I just wanted to ask you about that because there seems to be an implied meaning in that. Uh, you said you don't know where the minister for education is. Where do you think Norma Foley is?
5: I don't know, but I do know that there are other ministers in government, and this isn't a. a is she on
3: business, holidays or something, or is she sick? I don't or?
5: know. I, I I what I'm saying is that there are other ministers in government who are are showing leadership. There are other ministers in government who are who are constantly giving reassurance uh, to the people who are affected by their sector. Uh, they are, you know, they are, they are dealing with the partners in their sector. I don't get that sense in education that any of the other departments I deal with feel they have a partnership with the department or with the minister. Everything feels like it's at arm's length. There are communications happening as to, as to how things will be rolled out through media and not direct contact with the departments. Uh, and, you know, this is something that the, the opposition have been working very, very closely or trying to be working very closely with government over the last 18 months. We have actually bitten our lips on numerous occasions in order to pre- pre- prevent school communities, you know, having a level of anxiety around school opening and the, the safety of it to ensure that schools remain open and there wasn't unnecessary anxiety. Now we're at the point where the systems at the, uh, at the brink of collapse because of inaction from government on reports that came out in May. Because they're not uh, in you know listening to what teachers and, and and school communities are saying about about substitution, the minister said that it was news to her. We make a, a practical suggestion about booster vaccines being rolled out in priority for those working in the school system. There's no reaction from government and then yesterday there's a mixed messaging at at best there's mixed messaging over uh, exemptions or non exemptions for teachers okay. it's m s and we and there, at some point somebody in the education world has to has to cry you know hard to this and demand that the Minister take control of it, because I don't know who is in control.
3: Um, You think the school system is on the brink of collapse. Uh, Do you think uh, that it's worse than that, that in three weeks from now, when we get into the beginning of December, that we could be looking at lockdown because uh, there's that prospect, uh, it seems, uh, and that's a very real prospect now?
5: Um, I I, I don't really want to count on that. We all remember what January was like. Was, you know, the the vaccination regime has has changed a lot of our lives. We are we are living very different lives than what we were living in January. Um, but you know, reactions, uh, you know, to, to numbers that that come out week to week is not good enough. When because I put in uh, an awful lot of. Um measures to you know it, to to predict this eventuality we all know that November and december is coming it's not difficult to predict that November and december is coming uh, and that the health system is going to be under more strain. We all know that we need sick pay we all know that we need uh, to ensure that when p o p payments um are keeping an awful lot of families on the road, that they shouldn't be cut shouldn't be when restrictions come in. And we all know that engine testing should have been rolled out since April May, and six months later it still hasn't been done. You know, we have tried as best as we can as a Labour Party to be constructive. I repeat, we were the only opposition party to vote with government to keep the legal framework intact until January, so the restrictions like this could be could be brought in. Every other opposition party voted against it we voted for it okay. so, what so, so when it comes to making difficult decisions we've no difficulty with doing doing that and standing with government but when we see a situation where the school system cannot cope because there is no leadership we have to call it out
3: Alright we'll leave it there for the moment thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning Aon O'Reardon is uh, the Labour Party spokesperson on education enterprise and trade Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Finnegale TV for Mead West, English joins us now. Minister, good morning, thank you. Uh, just like uh, Aona O'Riordan, I suppose uh, it's only right and fair to ask you the same question about the balance in all of this between public health, mental health, and protecting the economy. Uh, do you believe uh, that the new restrictions uh, meet that balance?
1: I think they do, Michael. Uh, and, and, and to be fair, you're right, that's what we are trying to achieve here the balance between public health, bringing this virus back under control as quickly as we can, but also recognising that we're trying to keep an economy open, keep people at work and to balance people's own health and mental health as well. We've had an extremely difficult 19, 20 months trying to manage COVID and we're trying to get the balance right with uh, with the measures now to interrupt and to break the spread if we can of COVID-19 without trying to impact people's lives too much. But it's certainly Mm. any changes to bring in. But I think a combination of uh, these additional measures to reduce the levels of social contact as well as the booster programme, the, the vaccine booster, uh, you know, the changes that programme, I think will help us and will strengthen and hopefully we can take, the, get, take these numbers down in the weeks ahead. But they the, are extremely high.
3: As the Minister for Employment, you must be very concerned that once again you've put the nightclub industry out of work.
1: Of course they're very concerned and I've always said that, that, that we try to avoid um, stopping businesses trading as much as we possibly can and it's certainly extremely difficult for that sector. have only been reopened a couple of weeks that we're back in there with restrictions again. I know open times of up, up to 12 o'clock. Some might decide to open for a few hours. Uh, that. But right. uh, but it has a No, Michael, I'm being honest here, yeah, but yeah. it has a massive impact yeah. on and them. There
3: there no the nightclubs the night have closed. Uh, I mean, the Taoiseach said as much yesterday. Um, yeah, no, I wasn't. Is is it fair to cut the pub payment, though, on the same day that you put the people out of work?
1: Well, there are two things. First of all, the, the pub payment and the changes to the pub payments are flagged back from last July. And they're, they're in a course of action to reduce and to, and to bring people off PUP and back in line with the traditional job seekers payments and all the other supports that are there and available as well. And in many cases, there wouldn't be much difference in the, in the amount of assistance the household would get in relation to the PUP and all the payments once you engage with the intro office and go through that. So they're, they're slightly different. And I think we can't assume that everybody who left PUP and there was 17,000 in the last couple of weeks, that they're all in one industry. Uh, we do track where the various people go back as best we possibly can. So I I don't think it would be appropriate just to to say, "Okay, leave PUP there. Those who are out of work or find themselves out of work again because of these restrictions, they now need to engage with our rental offices and we'll work with them individually as families with the assessments, as we've always done. It is important. The PUP was meant to be a measure for three months. It's now in place for nearly 13 or 14 months. Uh, and we have to we had to wind it down. It is fully wound down by, by, by February mm. and that was our plan and that's the intention to stick with well, that. But what the should they do?
3: Go and get a job in a, a shop or a supermarket or some of well, these there's, places there's, that are advertising things. for staff.
1: Yeah, well there there is two things there, Michael. As I said, mm. it would be important that anybody is, who comes who, who might find us about work again because of these restrictions, that they engage with our intro offices and take the best guidance and advice there. Two things happen there. Mm. Yes. Uh, You you can get access to your supports, the job seekers, and all the other supports are there for families as well. Uh, And number two, then, there is guidance and advice and training uh, for other jobs as well. It is fair to say, I'm not saying everybody's changed their career, Mm. but there are many job opportunities out there. I've been engaging with businesses up and down the country every day of the week for the last couple of months. And every business I talk to is struggling to get staff and can't get staff and are asking me to help them find staff. So it's not a consolation, but there are opportunities out there for some people. And that's why I'm saying to you, when you see the PUP numbers down to 60,000 now, they're in all sorts of jobs. Many of them have moved jobs, changed jobs, changed career. Some want to go back to their, to their, to their job and we have, we have to try to mm. manage that as quickly as we possibly can. But we are also trying to manage COVID and protect people's health. And it is, as you say, a balancing act here. And we'll, we'll work through this as best we possibly can in the weeks ahead. I do believe the rollout of the booster vaccine will will have a serious impact here. We can see it in the over-80s, we can see it in the over-70s healthcare workers. It is having an impact uh, on those who who receive the booster and that's why the programme has been ramped up and rolled out at pace in the weeks ahead. About 250 to 60,000 doses Mm. a week will be administered over over this month and into the month after that as well.
3: Yeah, but the task force was only re-established yesterday.
1: Yeah, but the program is in on the way. We're bringing it in back in the task force. Uh, the to start
3: program. again. To, to start again with the boosters. It's,
1: it's to make sure we have the right focus and we can achieve the high numbers we achieved before. At one stage, we were up at 350,000. Uh, vaccine mm. a week or that 260 so we want to bring back up to that because There's no clarity
3: so on antigen tests uh, we just heard very strong criticism about that in the schools but there's no clarity on anti- antigen tests at all uh, in terms of how they'll be subsidised or used in schools for that matter uh, and we have uh, this dispute uh, between Alan Kelly and the Taoiseach about whether teachers should restrict their movements for five days uh, if they're in close yeah, contact be. with somebody okay. and we've heard both okay. sides of that uh, but I A Reardon yeah, saying that the school system is on the brink of closure. And uh, he asked a, a question which I think is going to be answered by the end of the day, whether you answer it now or somebody else does later on. Where is the Minister for Education?
1: Uh, two things there on that. First I didn't hear Aidan say I, I was stuck in a meeting. I just jumped out. Number, number one, Norma Foley has found her yes, she's in the doors. So I've no doubt she'll be taking that question today. Is everybody else do' Aidan really knows at order business, all these questions can be put to the various ministers. Number two, uh, the teacher was very clear. The, the five-day rule is for everybody. That's, there's no exclusion for teachers. I, I don't know why Labour uh, want to make an issue with that. That's not the case. And he was very clear on that. In relation to antigen testing, uh, it, it, there is very clear guidance and guidelines from, from the health authorities. And if you are a close contact or if you're in a, in a household with a close contact or a COVID case, they do supply kits for you. They do supply the advice uh, and the guidance is there and they are free. Where the conversation is around mm-hmm. the subsidisation of kits is for people who... Are engaging in what will be regarded as high-risk social activity. That they are encouraged to use antigen testing as a as precautionary. It's not to be all end-all because you are not guaranteed that you're COVID clear with antigen test And we know, there's an ongoing debate right across the world with the health authorities and that as well but we're saying they, in addition to all the other measures Yeah but if you're I mean,
3: socialising uh, uh, regularly you should be testing yourself two or three times a week at a, a cost of about eight, 8 euro a uh, 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 test uh, and when it comes to the HSC uh, you can test yourself when you get it in the post uh, and I know of somebody who waited 12 days uh, before it came uh, in well, well, the Well Michael to
1: be fair now anybody I know got it the next day so well, I, um, you might know somebody I but do. I'd like to yeah that's fine I'd love to meet that person but anybody I've engaged with
3: I'll I introduce you if you like door.
1: I'd love to because Michael, it's truth you now, yeah. anyone I have spoken.
3: Well, I'll introduce to you, say you say if you like. That's that's the truth. Yeah. Um, Mike, do, do, you know, do you think, we're think we're... That
1: one person? I you... think it's unfair to say okay. That. that. Okay, we you... know. okay, Okay. So, to be fair, now Michael, I'm going to knock down the head because anybody I've dealt with have literally got the knock on the door the next day with their antigen test delivered. Okay. Uh, so please I think it's unfair to say now that it's the norm for a 12-day delivery
3: well I didn't say it was the norm I said that you, when you get you it in the post to that I'm not no I said that. when you get it in the post and I mean if let's say you uh, uh, um, get uh, the HSE tell you on a Friday that you're going to uh, be sent out antigen tests that you should be testing yourself uh, it'll be at least Monday evening if not Tuesday
1: no it won't be Michael and you shouldn't be saying that that's
3: not the well, when will you get it not,
1: because anybody I on know, a Saturday that Saturday post I've got it at the weekend and because it's not housed by the post, it's by others as well. So we'll have to read it different that, but I think it's wrong for you to give that impression that it's 12 days and I'm going to nip that now because that's not the case. Yeah. It's fair to say the issue around subsidization...
3: <laughs> I'm telling and you one actual experience people. and I didn't yeah. try to portray it as that's anything okay, else. Do, do, you, do you think that we'll be looking at a, a lockdown for Christmas?
1: I don't believe so. And that's not the intention. Now, if you look through Nethat's letter and Nethat's advice, uh, while it clearly said... Uh, they, they can't rule out any other restrictions as time moves on. They're recommending that for now we make we make the initial changes in relation to reducing our socialisation and, and asking people to work from home again where they possibly can, and to roll out at, at pace the, vast, the, the vaccine booster. And the health advice from the European authorities and from our own NIAC is, uh, is allowing us now roll that booster out to an increased number of people. Those are 50 plus those who have a, a, have a health condition from from. Um, Eighteen up to up to fifty as well. Mm. All those over the eighties, over sixties, over seventies have been—they've been getting that in the last couple of weeks as well. So I think it's to continue that way at pace because it is working. Okay. But again, but again, Michael, the most important advice for any of us uh, is uh, is back to basics: the social distancing, the washing our hands, using the sanitizer. It's fair to say. And I'm meeting the retail forum again this morning. I watch people. All of us. Well, you um, know, yeah, every, uh, you we're know, getting every calls
3: every day from people. By the way, Minister, asking us uh, to tell shops uh, to fill up their uh, sanitizer. maybe you'd mentioned that to them uh, some I, some I, of I, them have disappeared and some of them are empty and all of that sort of thing
0: uh, Michael
1: you're right and that's something that I'm meeting the, f- the retail forum next uh, today in a few minutes, okay. and that's the big, my big message that we have to all of us reinforce our messaging our communication but our effort to protect each other and ourselves that's the best way to stop the advice okay thank the you
3: basics. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. As always, uh, that's uh, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, Damien English, TD.
2: Michael Reed on LMFM.
3: Now, British and European uh, officials will meet uh, again today to lay the groundwork before the next uh, series of meetings uh, between David Frost and Maris Sefcovic on Brexit, or more importantly, uh, the fear that the British uh, will trigger Article 16. Uh, in uh, terms of uh, the withdrawal agreement. What was
4: interesting is that all parties, I think it's fair to say, and I don't want to go through each individual kind of conversation, but all parties um, favour access, continued access to the European single market as being beneficial to jobs and employment um, in Northern Ireland and to businesses. And I think that's an important point in in, in respect of this entire saga. All parties wanted, and Deputy Hohi raises in terms of the approach, in terms of the parties, they want them resolved by negotiation. Uh, I don't think they want the triggering of Article 16, they want a the negotiated set, uh, 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 resolution of all of the issues um, that, that, that have been raised so far.
3: That's the Taoiseach speaking in the doll about conversations he's had with unionist politicians. Let's speak uh, to Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael TD for Loud, and chair of the Roxas Committee on the Implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. And indeed, uh, as you told us last week, you were in Belfast last week, Fergus O'Dowd, and uh, you've had your own set of meetings uh, with uh, various people uh, on both sides of uh, the political divide. What have you been hearing north of the border?
6: Well, first of all, 13 members of our committee attended. That's all parties, SDP, Sinn Féin Alliance, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and so on. Now, we met unionist politicians privately, and we also met community groups, we met victims groups, we went to Ballymurphy, we went to Spring Hill, uh, we also uh, met some academic people who were giving us an in-depth analysis of their views on, on the difficulties of the protocol and how it might be resolved. I suppose the key takeaway is that situation is getting tense up there, that unionists are very unhappy with the way things are going. Obviously, their leader is refusing to cooperate with the north-south structures. The High Court in Belfast has said that that withdrawal is unlawful. Um, and indeed, moderate unionist opinion is, 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 at the moment, is very shy about commenting um, you know, on this issue because of the extreme views in their, in their community, which I believe are, you know, are causing them concern
3: themselves so that's staunch opposition from some
6: yes yeah and, and it's it, the opposition that is coming is affecting moderate uh, unionists uh, who would be you know who would be favorable to obviously the, the, the mm. protocol and, and better business and better while retaining absolutely their right to be part british and to remain unionist, they very much favor increased business and trade and cooperation north south so it's a very difficult situation mm-hmm. and obviously the British government uh, has been very unhelpful in its public attitude and it's sort of banging a drum for English nationalism uh, which is affecting, you know, their vote in England but it's also most unhelpful in, in the North and the
3: South. Relationship yes. That's um, not a very good uh, report uh, or it doesn't sound good. Uh, am I hearing it right? Are you saying that staunch opposition is driving o- opinion to the extent that either it's influencing people uh, to be uh, opposed to to the withdrawal agreement or to the extent that people are afraid to talk in favour of it?
6: I think people people are very concerned, they're very worried in their communities. Uh, There were a number, we did meet unionist politicians privately, I want to stress that, Mm. Uh, but also community groups who were to meet us uh, just felt that it wouldn't be the appropriate time to go ahead, which was extremely disappointing but very understandable because these were in loyalist communities, mm. and that's how they felt, and we respect that, of course. Um, and obviously, it, the British government, who seem to now, at least if you can believe them, seem to be you know, less, uh, less inclined to invoke Article 16. They're having discussions which, according to Simon Coveney, are more hopeful than they were. It's, it is very hopeful, mm. but I wouldn't bet my shirt on it. Yeah. So, like, it's a very difficult time, Michael. And
3: Well, there was that hope, uh, but uh, I suppose uh, there was disappointment then when Boris Johnson spoke again on Monday evening about uh, potentially invoking Article 16. Uh, what were people saying to you about the recent violence in Northern Ireland? Uh,
6: what they said was that it was a very small minority in the community were perpetrating it, and I think in total there were something like uh, three buses burned. But there are, there are, I mean, you had Billy Hutchinson making a statement last week where... He still said he is in favour of the of the Good Friday Agreement, but he wasn't he wasn't happy what was happening. So there are all
3: sides I, think, of I think he went further. I think he said he, they were yeah. withdrawing uh, support for it, uh, and that the PUP would no longer support it. But they were in favour of peace.
6: Yeah, well, Michael, he mm. he, he was very important mm. in the in the actual agreement itself and getting loyalist paramilitaries or former loyalist paramilitaries. Uh, in favour was hugely important just as was getting Sinn Féin people mm. on site as well. But the key point is that the increased contacts between ourselves in the south and in the north on political, social, economic grounds is, is the only way to go. And we will go back up uh, to the north, obviously, in the new year. Uh, we made very good contacts, and indeed some of those contacts will be coming to our committee, uh, particularly wave trauma, which deals with victims of violence, violence, um, you know, we have the, the, the victim, sorry, the Commission for Victims Remains mm. coming into us on Thursday. We have Justice for the gotten, Forgotten coming into us in a couple of weeks. We'll have Wave Trauma where we we'll are speaking directly to uh, representatives of families who have loved ones whose bodies have never been recovered mm-hmm. speaking. And this is all trying to...
3: And we don't want to go back there. I mean, this no, is the whole point, absolutely. isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, the worst possible outcome of all of this. Uh, and to some degree it seems as though there's a sense of damned if you do and damned if you don't
6: i think the key point now is there are elections next year mm. and that's one of the things that's driving this and obviously the dup in recent polls are dropping significantly in their support so mm. they're banging this drum now to to make it a, 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 a black or white choice, either you go for the orange or you go mm. for the green? And they go got
3: a the bounce British last British. week, because Jim Wells was too happy to tell us uh, on the show yesterday, and yes. uh, perhaps that was because of uh, this staunch position that they're taking.
6: Yes, it's a hard line. And one of the mm. issues is that because the arrangement at the moment is that you have a First Minister and a Deputy First Minister, yeah. if they were to change that to joint First Ministers, it might move the dial away from, you know, the... The green or orange, I and mean, now there's an awful lot of moderate people. There's significant uh, changes, particularly among moderate unionism, mm. you know, who remain unionism but are not, you know, are not opposed to yeah. better relations and to encourage them. So what we mean, but
3: need there's to- a chance that power sharing could collapse altogether, isn't there?
6: Well, there is, of course, and in fact, effectively, the DUP are not working, the North-South Ministerial mm. Council, and they're saying, you know, if they don't get what they want about the protocol, that they will collapse it, which is really, I think, Donaldson has put himself in a very difficult position, uh, and it's putting pressure on the British government to take a harder line as well, mm. even though they, you know, I mean, you can't trust Boris Johnson or, 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 or Lord Frost because, you know, they, they, just, they just don't get it. They don't get Ireland, they don't understand it. It's the worst government, British government, there has been, in relation to Irish affairs, for for a long, long time. And you go back to, you know, Theresa May, notwithstanding her difficulties, understood the issue. Uh, obviously, you know, Tony Blair did, and John Major did, mm. and, and that's why people like like those people I mentioned are making statements at the moment in support of more moderate and more down to earth, more practical relationships. And I mean, it's all like we do, we can't go back to where we were. Hmm. We've got to ensure, as we must as members of Parliament, to continue to meet. I think that's the key thing.
3: Okay. To Would to you say Johnson's government. Tories are as bad as Thatcher's Tories in terms of uh, the relationship uh, that uh, the British government has with uh, the Irish government and its understanding of Northern Ireland?
6: I think it's the worst government we've had in a long time. Um, I know that when Thatcher was there, there was violence there was people being killed north and south and so on. There were bombs in our streets, there were MP has been murdered. It's an entirely different situation now, but I think the point is that Johnson doesn't get it, uh, and uh, Lord Frost and himself seem to decide everything. There is some view that the, that the British Foreign Office is excluded from all of this. That the information coming from Europe is is not being is not being is not getting uh, to the Prime Minister because he may not want to hear it. So really, it's a very difficult position, but. Perhaps they're thinking again, I won't hold my breath, you won't either, Michael, mm. but it's important that they, if they can sort this out, nobody wants problems with medicines uh, in the north, nobody wants problems with food and sausages and so on, but we can, you know, we have a great relationship, uh, you know, economic relationship east-west, we have tariff-free goods okay. between... Yeah. In Ireland, we have great trade north and south. It's growing.
3: But and work to of do.
6: Yeah. Lots of yeah.
3: Lots of work to do. OK, I have to leave there, though, because we've got headlines. Thank you, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's uh, Fine LTD TD for Loud and East Eastmead. Fergus O'Dowd is uh, the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement.
2: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
3: Now, if you're getting married uh, this weekend, uh, it seems as though the party will be over and it's time for bed at around midnight as a result of new restrictions which come into force, which prohibit the sale of alcohol after midnight.
4: Well, first of all, all licensed premises, OK? That's all licensed premises. Um, it, it's residents of hotels, I think, are the only um, uh, exemption on that. Um, In terms of uh, why didn't we go further, Uh, we've got, you know, we got advice. We went one step further in the advice and bring it back to midnight, which is agreed with the CMO. He he agrees with that. Um, And this is about about balance uh, because we have a vaccination program. We're rolling out the booster vaccination. And the decision last night, which is by NIAC, the National Immunization Advisory Committee, Uh, in significantly expanding those now who are eligible for the booster takes it to about 2.1 million. Um, And um, over the coming weeks, we will have a significant number of those who are most at risk uh, will have have received um, the booster vaccine. So it's a matter of monitoring this. Uh, We've taken decisions that we believe will help reduce um, the the, the incidence, both in terms of infections and hospitalizations, uh, and um, already in terms of the over-80s program, the, it's very encouraging to see the results of the booster campaign there. And um, we see that also following through in the 70 to 80 age cohort and then the 60 to 69 uh, cohort. And, um, you know, that, that's ramping up significantly. It obviously is dependent on your scheduling, you know, the, the five-month um, schedule. So we believe it's appropriate for now. We're not ruling out anything further, uh, but it's based on the public health advice that we've received from Neffert and the CMO. No, sorry, the weddings, sorry, look, no, it's all all licensed premises. We'll have to vacate the premises. It covers everything until midnight.
3: That's the whole lot. Uh, Let's talk uh, to Porik Cribben, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Vintners Federation of Ireland, the VFI. Good morning, Porik. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Was this much of a surprise?
7: Uh, The timing was certainly a surprise, Michael. Uh, We had a meeting yesterday morning
0: at nine o'clock
7: with various departments, uh, and Fulch Ireland, not just us, but the, the whole tourism and hospitality sector. Uh, and there was absolutely no inkling at that meeting that this was coming down the tracks. Uh, it wasn't heralded anywhere. Uh, there was there, there was no indication from government that it was even being considered uh, uh, up to uh, about 11.00, yesterday morning.
3: Right. Uh, reading between what uh, the Taoiseach said there, it's possible he'll be back in three weeks implementing further restrictions.
7: Uh, yes, I mean, um, the, the Taoiseach's speech yesterday and all of the Taoiseach's speeches over the that past 18 months tell us a certain amount, but I think much more informative is the press conference that they have afterwards. And if you looked at that press conference last night, uh, you certainly would not be optimistic that that they are confident uh, that this will have the desired effect. Uh, we've been very clear, Michael, since the, we stood shoulder to shoulder mm. with the then Minister for Health back on, on on the 15th of March last year that public health is the priority, and we have we have maintained that stance um, uh, all along and have been supportive uh, in in tough times uh, in, in some of the stuff that government have been doing. But, you know, there comes a time when uh, inaction on behalf of government uh, has to be called out. And we've seen over the last 18 months what I would refer to on behalf of certain ministers and indeed certain senior ministers in method, uh, a certain intellectual arrogance where they think that we the public, you the public, we the public are, are pretty stupid. They thought we wouldn't know how to use masks. So for three months they held up the use of masks. They now think we're stupid enough that we won't know how to use antigen testing, so uh, that's not going to happen. And I listened this morning to the health minister on Morning Ireland, and, you know, if I wasn't frustrated before that, I certainly was frustrated then when he was asked repeatedly, when would the guidelines for antigen testing be available? And all he could say was shortly, and we in the middle of a crisis.
3: Mm. I think there's a lot of truth in that. uh, But do your members have to take responsibility for some of the problems as well for not implementing uh, the restriction on only allowing people in who had COVID certs? Uh, As we've been discussing uh, and people know, a, a third of pubs or thereabouts have not been implementing that. And to some extent, it could be argued that this has led to the scale of the problem we're in now.
7: Okay, let let me let me address that point very clearly. Uh, that that figure uh, of a third of the pubs uh, was um, was uh, put in the public domain, but when the Department of the T was actually questioned on it, the, they, the the information was about three weeks old and was in the lead up to the twenty second of October when restrictions were about to be lifted. And I have and I do accept that in that lead up there was a, a certain. Uh, latitude taken by some members, which we do not condone. Mm. Uh, no, and I know you don't. To...
3: I know you don't, but, I mean, is it right and proper to call it out? Because oh, we're,
7: Absolutely, absolutely. You know. If, you go back, mm. if you go back, Michael, uh, to uh, last year, we were the ones who put pressure on government to give the Gardaí additional uh, mm. additional powers, and we were the ones who publicly called out for those who were breaking restrictions. Mm to feel the full force of the law. But having said that, the one thing that I'm finding anecdotally from around the country is that those that are actually weren't complying mm. were the places where the public were flocking to because the public had got very yeah. tired of the restrictions. Yeah,
3: and, so and, 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 and I and I and I accept that, but you were being asked to police it and I accept that most of your members did. Uh, but uh, it's those people, those members, those publicans who are suffering uh, as a, a result, perhaps to some degree, or in part uh, at least, because of the inaction of those. And uh, I just thought I you might want I the opportunity to say to those pubs, if you've made your bed, sleep in it.
7: I, I You will find no argument from me on that, Michael, uh, those that didn't uh, comply with the with the restriction. Mm didn't do themselves, didn't do their customers or didn't do their fellow publicans any favours.
3: Okay, well as things stand, stand, wedding guests as we heard are going to be told to go home, the party's over at midnight, the same with Christmas parties and all the rest, nightclubs are effectively closed Uh, what does that mean uh, in terms of this Christmas for you and your members?
7: Well, there's two things, the first thing I would say about the the move on nightclubs to 12 o'clock, I would say is, is, is to a certain extent a cynical move uh, and I'd say for this reason, uh, it's been called a curfew rather than a closure. Effectively, nightclubs don't open until 11 o'clock or thereabouts. So it's been called a curfew, but it is in effect a closure. We believe the reason that's happening is because if they called it a closure, they would have to reintroduce some of the support that, uh, that, that have, have disappeared. So I, I, I don't give government any marks for that.
3: Right. In well, concept, da- da- Damien English was more or less saying, "Well, they can get a job uh, in a restaurant or a shop uh, everywhere he goes." Uh, the minister was telling us uh, people are are p- crying out for staff.
7: I'm talking about the businesses as distinct from the, the employees. employees. Okay. And I think, I think yeah. it's a bit disingenuous of Damien to suggest that it's as easy as that. I mean, is he suggesting that the DJ in the nightclub should go down to the local launder? And, and get a job on the checkout. Yeah,
3: well, he was saying go down to the Intrio um, uh, Centre and they'll sort them out.
7: Yeah, I, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that blasé stuff that, mm. uh, you know, doesn't actually um, uh, pay the bills on, on a Friday or on a Saturday. And in terms of the effect on, on, on the businesses generally, I think there's a bigger issue here, um, and it's, it's this. That the message has gone out very clearly: reduce your socialisation. Uh, and I think that message in the current context is appropriate. I'm not arguing with that message. What effect is that having? It has this effect. We're seeing Christmas parties, by and large, being cancelled. We're seeing uh, trips uh, out being being significantly reduced. We've seen that over the weekend gone out, and there is there is a need for the supports that were in place. To be, to be maintained in the full basis that are there mm. as long as these restrictions last.
3: Do you think that they'd close you down if they could uh, afford to pay those supports?
7: I think, Michael, that uh, if you look at the the numbers in hospital and where they're projecting them to go, mm. this is not just about pubs. It's not just about hospitality. Mm. The, 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 the very strong sense I got from the Taoiseach last night was that this is about society, and in terms of, he was asked a very direct question, you know, is this a tee-up for a full lockdown, not just for pubs, but for, for, the, mm. for, for, for the for the um, society in general, and he said he couldn't rule anything out. Now, when Taoiseachs are making statements like that, you, you get even more worried than uh, before.
3: Okay, Parag. We'll leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Parag Cribbin, Chief Executive Officer of the VFI uh, Thanks to Dolores, uh, who sent us a message on Facebook, and she'd love to know why it is uh, that they're closing at midnight. She'd love the Taoiseach to explain how closing pubs or restaurants or Nightclubs at midnight helps to stop the spread. All it does is destroy business. Uh, A number of people in touch with this uh, with uh, similar comments uh, to that uh, this morning. Uh, Another comment uh, then uh, from Rose who says, "Listening to Damien English saying you'll receive the antigen test the next day. Uh, she's had a different experience with a family member had to wait 10 days for an antigen test to arrive from the HSE thanks uh, for that Rose uh, the minister would love to meet that person uh, and uh, I'll probably introduce him to the person I was telling him about earlier on who had to wait 12 days Jerry Floyd emailing saying uh, that it's easy for mean English uh, to say that there's jobs out there in retail, minimum pay. If you work for an employer for 10 to 20 years and take up a new job, you lose redundancy and seniority rights. The HSE is not for fit for purpose. Minister Donnelly and the rest of them are akin to Chicken Little. Prepare for another lockdown, start panic buying now. Vaccines, not the silver bullet miracle we were sold, says Jerry Floyd in his email. I'll give you one more comment for the moment. We'll come to plenty more of them later. Martin in touch saying that if we had proper investment in our health services and hospitals over the years, we wouldn't have to be implementing these measures now. If you go back to November of 2018, there were record numbers of people on trolleys in hospitals and nothing done about it since then. It's everyone's fault, bar the government's. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, everybody who has been in touch so far today. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. On LMFM. is a professor in genetics in uh, Trinity College, uh, Dublin, and a member of ISAG, the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group, and uh, joins us on the, the line now. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What do you think of uh, the announcements made by government yesterday?
8: Unfortunately, I don't think they're going to achieve what they want. Um, you know, so they seem to be maybe the low hanging fruit. You know, why why this idea of closing nightclubs, venues at midnight, as if that makes any difference? Um, I don't see how that achieves anything at all. Um, and, you know, they're talking about now rolling out antigen testing. But we need things, we need uh, change really, really urgently in our in our increase in case numbers, because the hospitals have expressed very, very clearly that they can't cope with an increase and having a functioning health system has to be considered essential. And the real shame is that there are things they could have been doing, um, things that are not hard, that they could have made very clear statements on. Such as? Well, one that's very easy is um, having a proper mask standard um, rather than face coverings. All of the government's announcements say face covering, but we know that there are very high quality masks that are really, really effective at blocking the virus. So these are, the standard is described as FFP2 or N95. It blocks 95% of particles including the virus so they also because of the way they're made they tend to be well fitting on your face mm. which is mm. also important because you've got gaps in your mask it isn't as effective so that's something they're they also could
3: expensive it. though aren't they
8: um yeah they're a bit more expensive mm. you know so it'll cost um i think about 250 for one of them and um, so you know they, they are more expensive Um but you know this is cheaper than a lot of the, it's cheaper than a lot of the other things we're being asked to do but I think that's somewhere that government could be subsidizing if they felt that was mm. necessary but I think it, they are very very effective and um, they should be saying that that is the mask that's required not a face covering because what I've seen I'm sure you've seen the same is yeah, just somebody yeah. pulling a t-shirt up over their nose you know that's, uh, <laughs> that's yeah, not effective. Yeah. And another I've seen people
3: is, with K90 masks as well, uh, just covering their mouth and their nose exposed, uh, which you'd probably be better off with a t shirt over your face.
8: <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, so clearer messaging on the masks, and that mm. is extremely effective. But that on its own isn't enough. Nothing on its own is enough. And I mm. think that's um, what we need to be clear on. The other thing that they haven't really taken seriously, although they've paid some lip service over the past few months, is ventilation. So ventilation isn't something that a customer, or employee can change or control on their own. There have to be proper ventilation standards. And this should fall under, you know, the workplace safety um, and under general um, health and safety type, um, you know, regulations Mm. and how those things are monitored and certified. And if they had taken those things seriously, you know, those things would be very, very useful. The other thing is, if you look at it, our testing system is not um, coping with the need at the moment. It's very difficult to get a test now um, because there's, they're oversubscribed so we need to do more testing. We need to know where the virus is. They need to have proper contact tracing in primary schools. It never should have been stopped. So these things um, should have been done as a matter of urgency. And even the antigen testing, which will be useful because basically the antigen testing can be used for regular serial testing. So you can catch cases very quickly and people know that they need to isolate, hopefully before they pass it on. But that should be, you know, that's not going to be there tomorrow. Um, And, you know, we're talking about a situation where this is rapidly... um, the cases are rapidly increasing, and what the government wants to do, what everybody wants to do, is avoid the need for another lockdown because that's a huge failure to end up in lockdown again. But I don't know if they've done enough to achieve that, unfortunately, so I'm quite concerned.
3: Okay, and what about the COVID passes? Uh, would you think uh, that you're safer going to a cinema than you are going to a gym? Uh, do you think that there's more risk uh, of exposure to the virus or developing? Uh, the disease, if uh, you go to a cinema, than if uh, you're training beside somebody in a gym.
8: Actually, a gym is probably worse um, just without mm. any other information because you're more likely to be panting, mm. you know, because you're exercising. So you're more likely to be breathing out more virus if you are infected. Mm. Um, but then the gym could be well ventilated. Mm. So that could compensate for that. That's why, you know, so th- it's very difficult to give a one size fits all. And sure. But
3: that's why I was asking you, because I would imagine that if you're uh, beside somebody who's panting, uh, you're more at risk uh, and uh, you can probably keep your distance uh, depending on what movie is on in a cinema from other people, but you're going to need a COVID pass to go to the cinema and you won't for the gym.
8: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, I mean, I think the COVID pass, I think the masks um, should be everywhere you're with other mm. people. And, I, you know, in a in a gym, if it's hard to wear a mask, you know, when you're panting, it might slight, be slightly worse, but all the more reason to have really strict, really well-enforced ventilation standards because some gyms might well be fine. You know, they are ones that have windows that open and um, mechanical ventilation, but other gyms could become some kind of sweaty basement, you know, and there's a big difference. So I think this is where we've been calling for for a long time, you know, to say that you should have, like, you know, certify the ventilation standards of a given venue. And this is what they've done in other countries. And I think, um, I think Japan is quite an interesting example. You know, they've got 25 times our population, they've got really high population density, but their case rate is about one in a million. So that'd be, you know, uh, five or six daily cases um, in in Irish standards,
3: right?
2: But
8: and um, what they have, they have really good adherence to high quality masks. Um, hospitality venues like restaurants and coffee shops and those had to be certified as COVID safe before they were allowed open. A bit like you have with food and safety, food uh, safety. You mm. know, um, you know the the kitchen. Uh, in that case, the kitchen is monitored. But for the COVID safety, it's the ventilation and the filtration, and they're allowed open and they display uh, what we've called scores on doors, which is you can have the ventilation, a little electronic display that's visible before you even go into somewhere, you know, it's well ventilated. So these things and combinations of all of these things, um, not one thing is going to fix this. And I think that's been perhaps um, the the mistake that was made by the government, thinking that one thing could fix it. So vaccines alone we're never going to be enough um, because we knew you're never going to get a hundred percent uptake. We don't even have under twelves eligible for vaccination yet. So vaccines alone were never going to be enough. They're really, really good. They've made a huge difference. If we had this case rate. Without the vaccines, we would be in deep, deep crisis a long time ago. So the vaccines have made a huge difference, but they're not enough on their own. And if you think about it like a seatbelt, you know, if your vaccine is a seatbelt, it doesn't give you license to go speeding. You know, so um, the the vaccines are our seatbelt. They're really, really helpful. But we have to do other things as well. You don't test it by trying to, you know, by getting exposed or by speeding. So this this is, um, you know, -hmm. these are some of the things that should be happening now as a matter of urgency.
3: the Taoiseach said yesterday that it'll be 14, 21 days uh, before it's known if uh, these new measures are sufficient. Uh, I gather from what you're saying you'd agree that in 14 to 21 days we'll know what uh, the impact of uh, the measures are. You don't think that they will be sufficient and I'm getting the impression that you think uh, that more restrictions will be necessary at that stage.
8: I th- uh, unfortunately, yes, I think so. And, this is, this, and that's a huge failure because... We should be doing everything to avoid the restrictions you know so you know even when we had the lockdowns earlier this year it was really like okay a lockdown and then what you know so and if they're talking about uh, you know restrictions now you know closing the nightclubs at midnight and then what what stops this just getting bad again every time you relax things and try to go back to normal so you have to think about if you want to do all the normal things which we all do want to do, how do you mitigate for that increased activity of people um, so that you don't get this huge increase in cases? So the really good mitigations are with the thinking about this as an airborne disease. So you get infected if you breathe infected air. So how do you stop breathing infected air? So the masks help you and the air quality helps you. So that's either by diluting the virus out of the air by letting the wind blow through with ventilation or, or taking it out of the air with a mechanical filtration.
3: We used so to talk at the start of uh, the pandemic about cigarette smoke and to think about uh, the bars in the same way you would uh, about cigarette smoke. If the doors are closed, it gets very, very smoky uh, uh, and it'll continue to be like that and uh, it'll almost get hard to breathe. Or if um, you're close enough to somebody, you'll smell the smoke. If you're far away from them, you won't. So you yeah. keep your distance and you open windows and things.
8: Yeah, that's, I think it's still a good analogy because Because if you're far away from somebody in a well ventilated space, you'll never smell smoke. But if you're far away from them in a poorly ventilated space, it's going to build up in the air and you will be breathing that smoke in. So that's the same with the virus. You know, being far away isn't enough. If the space is not well ventilated, what do you think of what they're? they're, what they're oh, I'm sorry. Sorry.
3: sorry, I'm just going to ask you. What do you think of what they're doing in Austria? This lockdown for people who have not been vaccinated.
8: I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's probably really counterproductive. Um, I think um, anybody who's not vaccinated at this point, um, you know. So first of all, we all expect that you have a certain number of people who choose not to get vaccinated. The vaccination is voluntary. That's as it should be, and nobody ever expected a hundred percent uptake. And I think um, having restrictions just for the unvaccinated is going to feed into um, the sentiment that some people might have that the, the vaccination program is part of some kind of control, hmm. um, you know, so that it's not going to encourage anybody to get the vaccine. It's just going to be whatever feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. OK. OK, okay. Um, um, when uh, the um, result of all of this is looked at and NAFID meets in uh, the next week or, or so and looks at its next set of modelling projections. What do you think uh, might be the next move?
8: Uh, it's, I mean, it's hard to say because, I mean, I know what I'd like it to be. I think I'd like that to, you know, I'd like some really strong um, movement on um, the things I mentioned, the masks mm. and the ventilation. But it seems like the government is kind of instead trying to take small steps um, like this, this closing nightclubs at midnight, I don't see really what difference that's going to make. If well, well, are, will it so-
3: bring the ICU cases down from 500 to 200? And even if it does that, can we cope with 200 COVID patients in ICU?
8: Well, okay, so if it brings them down, the only way it'll bring them down is because it becomes a de facto closure without the government having to say it. So if that's what they wanted to do, if they wanted to close places Mm. without saying they closed them, you know, that might bring cases down. It might make people um, nervous enough that they don't go out. That could bring cases down, but that's a very. I I don't find that a transparent way of doing things. I think if, you know, so I don't like that from that point of view. But second of all, if we do get the cases down to something like 200, like you mentioned, then what do we do after that? You know, we we have to say, how do we get things in? How do we have uh, the situation so that it's stable and livable? And that's why the, the things like the ventilation is actually a long term solution. And it works no matter the variant. It actually works no matter the airborne disease. So it'll be just good, you know, what's wrong with fresh air? You won't get get a
3: cold, you won't get the flu, Um, you won't get COVID.
8: Standard, you know, that we, and you know, and so, and at the moment what happens is, you know, so in the schools, like the teachers have been, I think, great and they've been ahead of things and they've had their windows open last winter as well. But you know without any guidance they just have the windows open full and everybody's freezing and it could be that with proper guidance and proper ventilation standards they wouldn't have to have everybody freezing while they have the places ventilated okay. and I you know so you know you can do it you, you can actually be comfortable in a well ventilated space and that's what a well designed building and a well designed ventilation system will do and that's a good long term solution and I would view it a bit like, um, you know, water hygiene, you know, mm. thinking about air hygiene. It's not something that, you know, I never have to think happily about the water coming out of my taps. I just pour it into a glass and drink it and I'm happy that somebody else is taking care of that. And the same thing when I go into a restaurant, I don't think about their kitchen hygiene and we shouldn't have to think about the air hygiene either. It should be taken care of for us with standards, with industry, industry standards and um, certification and monitoring, just like it's done for those other things. And so that's the long-term solution, in my view. So we get the numbers down to some manageable level again. They'll go back up again as soon as we relax our restrictions, because we've only been thinking about restrictions so far, we haven't been thinking about mitigations and supports and all of the other things that need to be done.
3: Very good. Aoife, nice to talk to you and thank you for talking to us. That's uh, Professor Aoife MacLysact, who's a professor in genetics at Trinity College Dublin and a member of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group.
2: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. On now,
3: Trinity College, Dublin, St. Patrick's Mental Health Services, uh, the Royal College of uh, Surgeons in Ireland and Nursing Homes Ireland have come together to research how staff in nursing homes have been coping with the pandemic and the impact that it's had on the mental health of nursing home staff uh, over the course of uh, this last uh, year and a half or, or so. Dr. Conor Brady is uh, the lead author of uh, the co-worker nursing home study and on the line. Is a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning, Conan. Uh, it uh, is surprising to some degree, uh, but shocking to Uh, A large degree, uh, the findings uh, of your report. Uh, One in seven of those who responded to you have thought of ending their life over the previous week. And one in 11 uh, people working in nursing homes reported planning to end their life. You spoke to 390 staff working across 64 homes. Were you surprised or shocked for that matter?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And thanks so much for covering this uh, story. I think it's really important. Uh, So, yeah, look, uh, it's definitely something that jumped out uh, from the results of the study. We certainly weren't expecting such a high degree of suicidal planning. Um, Certainly, if you look at population studies globally during the pandemic, there are pretty high levels of suicidal ideation and th- thinking in the general population. Uh, for example in the UK I think the rates are about 9% uh, during the pandemic actually but even so our figure for the thinking for, for suicidal thinking in nursing home staff was, was much higher than that and um, the suicidal planning figure was certainly very concerning.
3: Right, and uh, I'm sure that's as a result of what uh, they've experienced uh, and they're working very closely with Uh, The residents or the patients uh, in these nursing homes and uh, to a large degree a nursing home is a a community of uh, people uh, which includes uh, the staff, uh, the residents uh, and indeed the visitors and everybody is like one big family to a large degree. So when people get very sick it's very disturbing Uh, and uh, I'm sure a, a lot of what you're reporting now is as a result of the amount of people whose staff lost during this period
0: that was our hypothesis i suppose it's not surprising to people that nursing homes have been disproportionately affected during the pandemic in the first wave of the pandemic in ireland about 56 percent of all the covid19 deaths in the country occurred in long-term care facilities so a huge number of deaths uh, occurring in nursing homes and as you said obviously residents are there for a very long time staff often form very close bonds with the residents in nursing homes and uh, it is very much like a community in many of these um places of work so uh there's been very little studies actually done internationally uh, on nursing home staff mental health. Even before the pandemic, there's been very little looking or quantifying exactly what they've been going through. Um, so we set out to look at this uh, during the pandemic. And uh, I suppose, you know, a number of different measures, as you mentioned, the suicidal ideation of planning was one of them. But we also looked at several other measures, including um, post-traumatic stress symptoms. So symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. We also looked at Staff well being and also uh, levels of depression and low mood. We also looked at moral injury, which is the psychological distress experienced in nursing or in staff in general when they've been uh, forced to witness or commit acts that go against their deeply held moral beliefs. Uh, and we looked at um, that was, that, was, that was probably the main result you released at the moment so far, no, that's, yeah. that's,
3: that's quite a lot, um, and uh, none of them uh, are irrelevant. They're all very, very serious. And uh, take it, uh, we're talking uh, about a response to an experience that you don't just get over very quickly.
0: Absolutely. And I thought that's one of the key things that we want to look at going forward. So we—I thought one thing we don't know for certain, this is a snapshot looking at um, a, a, period in t- a period of time last year ramping up... Um, as the third wave cases were ramping up from November up until January when cases were really, really high. And uh, we want to kind of repeat the survey now to see if these issues have persisted in nursing home staff. I suppose one problem with doing a survey like this is that we don't know if the problems were there before the pandemic or not. It's possible that a lot of staff were actually suffering from mental health issues that weren't really being studied before the pandemic. And obviously, as the pandemic progressed, the spotlight is focused a bit more on nursing homes and um, I think that's a good thing we're able to highlight the issues that uh, nursing home staff are facing going forward. So we're actually doing a second survey over the next few weeks uh, which will be opening up soon and will be very, um, very keen to recruit any nursing home staff who are listening in today.
3: Yeah, okay, well I, I imagine it's a hard job at the best of times and I, I think a lot of us have often wondered how does anybody do it uh, because uh, it's sort of par for the course uh, that you're watching people who, who you've built it up a relationship. Had pass away uh, on a regular basis. Uh, But perhaps the difference with the pandemic was the feeling of helplessness uh, that a a lot of staff may have experienced uh, in nursing homes, uh, a feeling of uh, abandonment when they were crying out for help and the help just wasn't there. And we've heard many stories like that over the course of uh, this pandemic.
0: Definitely. Uh, I suppose, unfortunately, our our study doesn't actually capture that necessarily. Um, Or certainly this this study doesn't. We have uh, another paper coming out soon which sort of highlights of these issues, hopefully. Um, but absolutely, I agree with you. Um, you know, it was very clear that, you know, the focus was very much on the hospitals initially and the nursing homes weren't really even focused on. And when you look back at the figures, it's very clear that actually that's where most of the um, mortality was happening early on in the pandemic. Um, and I suppose I, w- I suppose, it's speculating to some degree, but I suppose we do wonder if a lot of these uh, severe levels of symptoms of post-traumatic stress and difficulties with moral injury maybe relates to the fact that there were difficulties with obtaining PPE early on in the pandemic. Mm that nursing home staff uh, may have been subjected to huge amounts of stress due to a work absenteeism from COVID-19 or for other causes. So uh, it's uh, it, was, it was a very difficult time for them all.
3: Okay, there was a, a fantastic um, drama, a very hard-hitting drama on Channel 4 not so long ago. I'm not sure if uh, you've seen it or remembered Jodie Comer and Stephen Graham uh, working in a nursing home through the pandemic and experiencing much of all of the things that you're talking about this morning. And I think one of the things uh, that people watching that would have realised was that you were talking about ordinary people in extraordinary uh, situations, uh, extraordinary crises. uh, And it wasn't just one incident. It was one after the other. And how do you get through that? And where do you get the skills for that as an ordinary person? uh, And if people uh, need training uh, as we move forward, is that one of the things that you'll be looking at uh, from here on out?
0: I, I think it's one thing that was highlighted from our study, which was maybe a little bit surprising, but in another way, was not surprising actually. That all staff members were affected to the same to the same degree in terms of the level of post-traumatic stress. So whether you were an administrative staff member, whether you were working in a household or a catering or an activity coordinator, healthcare assistant or a nursing staff member. It didn't matter. Uh, actually, they all have the same level of post traumatic stress. So I think it's really important to make sure that we're targeting all these um, staff members equally and not excluding anybody on the basis of perceived level of con- contact with patients or uh, on the basis of their level of training. I think it's really important that they all get help. Certainly, it's very difficult to, um, to, to know where to go exactly right now. And that's one of the reasons we want to do the second survey going forward because um, I suppose one of the things is that. Um, you know, we we need to know if these issues are still there or not. If these were sort of specific last year, we want to know if they've kind of resolved to some degree. But I think it's really important that we highlighted this so that proper psychological supports can be implemented for staff Um, and also that staff are aware of the issues that they do, that they do have awareness that, you know, the mental health services are available for them, including St. Patrick's Mental Health Services, if they need to get help going forward. uh, That's really important, especially if they're having suicidal thinking. Uh, I suppose that's important to flag, seeing as we're discussing it uh, today.
3: Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, how long does it take to get over post-traumatic stress or is that too generalistic a, a question uh, or do people ever get over
0: it? Yeah, no, they do. It's treatable. Yeah. It's very yeah. variable in terms of, of, of its onset and how long um, people take to get better from it. Um, you know, it also can. You know, people can have it for maybe for years sometimes, and not with any treatment might be a little more difficult to treat. And obviously, mm. if you try and, in, in general, with any mental uh, health condition, if you uh, try and get in there early and help people, um, that you has better prognosis. Um, so it, it's very variable, but certainly it is treatable, and there's a number of different treatments for it. Mm. Um, I suppose it's important to say as well that you know we haven't diagnosed all these types of stress disorder. That's something you can't do with a survey. It has to be something that that's done by a you know a clinical. Mental health, a professional service uh, with a psychiatrist or psychologist, etc. Okay. Um, and we have to make sure, you have to say, make sure that these issues are persisting and that you're excluding other disorders. So, you know, it, it can be quite a complex thing to diagnose mm. and to treat, but it certainly is treatable. And I, I would say to anybody listening, if you feel like you're suffering from symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, you certainly should uh, seek help.
3: Okay, and that applies to in around half of uh, the people who are working nursing homes. It would seem from your study, yeah. uh, and one in mm-hmm. seven reporting. Uh, that they had thought about ending their life over the previous week. It really is a, a, a shocking survey. And you're looking to hear from uh, staff working in nursing homes now uh, through the Trinity College website.
0: Yeah, or if you email us at co-worker, all one word, co-worker at tcd.ie, we'll make sure you're notified when the survey is back
3: open. Okay, and I'm sure there'll be information for staff in nursing homes uh, through their nursing home, if they're members of Nursing Homes Ireland for that matter. That's correct. Yeah. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you very much. That's uh, Dr. Conan Brady, who's uh, the lead author of The Coworker Nursing Home Study. Michael Reed on LMFM now, Thanks uh, to Grania, who's in Drogheda. Was on the phone to us earlier asking if it's not a, a case of it being a no-win situation for the government. She says impose restrictions and people are complaining about civil rights and being treated like children do nothing and people are giving out that the government is being too complacent and not doing enough to stop the spread of the infection this is a pandemic all countries are struggling to keep it at bay and grania says i think whoever was in power in ireland would have the same difficulties and the same challenges we've just got to suck this up even though we all want our normal lives back again When will we get them back again? What is the long-term plan?
4: In terms of the hospital capacity, we've increased in one year um, the number of beds in hospital by about 1,000. By the end of this year, you'll have about 950, I think to be precise in terms of additional beds. We've improved the the, um, ICU from about 255 before the pandemic to 297 uh, approximately, um, which is a substantial increase in ICU capacity. But it's not just about the number of beds. It's also when you have a, a, a significant critical mass of COVID within hospitals, that affects the remainder of the wards and the remainder of the hospitals um, in terms of what they can do because of isolation and in terms of staffing having and staff taking protections and so on. Um, so uh, there gets a point in every health system across the globe. I mean, in some parts of the European Union, they've had to seek support from Other countries, the the European Union has had to get involved to help some member states uh, to support their hospital capacity because of high COVID numbers and that was only
3: quite recently. And that's uh, the Taoiseach uh, speaking in line, I suppose, with uh, what uh, gronia said in her comment about uh, this being a problem not just here, but one that is being faced right across Europe in a similar vein. Uh, another call to us uh, from Monica who says COVID is rampant in our schools and the government, she feels, is choosing to ignore the virus in the schools. She says, my daughter's a teacher and there's a, a large number of teachers who are outside sick in her school and they have the virus it's a struggle for the principal to keep classes going because substitute teachers are so hard to get the fourth wave hasn't even reached its peak yet so imagine how bad things are going to get in the coming weeks thanks uh, monica i think uh, she was probably saying that they, they either have the virus or have been in contact with somebody with the virus and have to be out because of the virus uh, adele says she's just wondering will we have to get covid vaccines every year like the flu jab, or is this third injection or booster going to be the final one? Uh, I imagine we probably will have to get them every year um, for as long as the virus uh, is around Uh, and indeed for as long as it continues to mutate or until they can come up with something that lasts longer uh, because uh, they do seem to be waning at the moment. A listener in Dundalk was in touch to say that they tried to book three COVID tests this morning but it was told uh, that the only available slots are for tomorrow afternoon. Surely we need to reintroduce walk-in centres in some of uh, the bigger towns around the country and give the huge, or given the huge jump in case numbers. Uh, thanks uh, to the caller for that WhatsApp message. Uh, it's undoubtedly a problem, uh, and uh, it's not just the problem, of course, uh, because we are vaccinated. There's a lot of people, it seems, who have COVID but don't know they have it. I think I heard somebody say for every four people who have COVID, you can assume there's another six uh, who have it and don't know they have it because they've been vaccinated and they're showing no symptoms. Anyway, that's uh, the importance of the boosters and the vaccines.
4: I've been saying consistently, the European Union have been saying consistently that they see ultimately this going to an annual uh, COVID vaccine. Um, They do see the booster being extended to everyone across Europe eventually. Some member states are doing that, but we're subject to the National Immunization Advisory Committee's advice, and that clinical advice is important because doctors, when they administer a vaccine, need to have clear advice, clinical advice, in respect of the safety and the efficacy of vaccines. That's the structure we've had. It has a, you know, There's a really good degree of confidence in that system because 90, up to 93% almost of all over 18-year-olds are fully vaccinated. I think we're over 90% now, just 90% of all over 12-year-olds vaccinated. So um, that, that's our system. Not, we, we've now rolled out, it's, it's commenced for the over-60s. The HSE will now operationalize the over-50s. They will use GPs. Uh, they will use um, uh, pharmacies and vaccination centers uh, in respect of those different cohorts. The immunocompromised and those, those with underlying conditions make up a very substantial part of the Um, population as well. As I said earlier, those extensions last evening take it to about 2.1 million people who will now be eligible for the booster vaccine. Uh, No earlier than five months, uh, the recommendation is six months after your second dose that you will get the the booster. Um, And um, so... Then will be a matter for, for for NIAC, who will then look at the data as it's emerging globally and through research in relation to the vaccine to make decisions as to the extension of it.
3: And that sounds like we probably will be getting uh, boosters uh, every six months uh, until uh, there's a vaccine. That will last longer than that. Somebody texting saying they're only lasting six months. Uh, I think that is uh, the point. Uh, another text from somebody who says, one minute antigen tests are a bad idea. Now all of a sudden, they're great. What the heck? Uh, Vera says as a musician uh, over many years, uh, the wedding party would arrive at two to the hotel, then the meal, then the music dancing over at half six. Uh, and that seemed to work very well. Uh, somebody else wondering if darts and rings should go ahead. Haven't got a clue. Uh, and one more text uh, from somebody who says, what's the big idea about closing at go out earlier home earlier you'll feel better too not so long ago closing times were 10pm yes 10pm on a Sunday night and everyone was fine that's the final word God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM good morning bye bye
2: The Michael Reid Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie